Welcome to the Women Want Strong Men podcast. I'm your host, Amy Stuttle. I believe it takes a strong man to appreciate a strong woman, and I'm here to bring a unique perspective to empower both sexes. I love talking with health experts, thought leaders, influencers, and people who have insightful information to share with us about our health, our society, and our pursuit for success and prosperity. Hello, and welcome to the podcast. I know you all are going to enjoy my guest today. But before I get to that, majority of the listeners still aren't following the show. And it's imperative to the success of the show that the listeners follow. And it's super easy to do. So if you just go to the podcast app, and then you click on my show, in the top right hand corner, there's a little check mark available if you haven't followed yet. So if you just click on that, you'll begin following the show. And I would greatly appreciate it. So on today's episode, I have a renowned expert on telomere biology and longevity medicine, Dr. Joseph Raphael. Dr. Raphael received his Bachelor of Arts in Philosophy from Princeton University and his MD from Hannerman University Medical School. He did his residency at the New York Hospital, Cornell University Medical Center. Dr. Raphael is board certified in internal medicine and is a diplomat of the American Board of Age Management Medicine. Dr. Raphael is the co-founder and CEO of PhysioAge, a software analytic tool that analyzes next-generation medical consultations by comparing patient data to populations and optimal values to form a deeper understanding of the patient's aging process. Their mission is to enhance the delivery of proactive medicine. So, Dr. Raphael, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm happy to be here, Amy. So the name of your practice in New York is Raphael Medical, and what treatments and therapies do you specialize there? So I've been in uh, what has been variously called from the late 90s anti-aging medicine to age management to now, I think the preferred term and term I like is longevity medicine, where our focus is to look at a person from a very comprehensive perspective, look at every aspect of their aging process look at health status indicators, biomarkers of aging, all of this, even the absence of any disease, and to put them in as healthy an aging trajectory as possible in certain systems, potentially even to reverse some damage that's been done by the aging process. So I sort of pick up where your traditional internal medicine or family practitioner or other specialist who's focusing on disease, and even to a certain extent focusing on preventing disease, what I look at is to optimize function, performance, and longevity potential. What do we do to do that? We first, as I said, we, we do from the molecular level, telomere biology, glycan age, we're going to talk about some of those things, the cellular level for immune function, different kinds of uh, senescent cells we can look at, and then to tissue and organ function, to routine blood tests that pick up, for instance, liver function tests, et cetera, and then to whole body stuff like how well your, your brain is functioning, you know, what your cardiopulmonary function is, and then just you know how you're feeling. I mean, we don't want to lose track of, oh, your numbers look great, but I feel like crap. Uh, we want to you know, help the person feel better. So the therapies we put to, we have basically a stepped approach where I look at lifestyle, stress reduction, sleep, finding purpose in your life, diet, it's varying strategies for that, that is uh, you know, a whole podcast in and of itself or a whole series of them. But give advice in a personalized fashion on that. And then supplements. If those don't achieve the goals that we want, then we, we move on to hormone optimization, which is, you know, I think, you know, natural because those are substances that are already in your body. And then from there, pharmaceuticals, if necessary, and other more cutting edge therapies that are available in the longevity medicine space now. 
So you created this analytic tool called PhysioAge. Do all your patients walk through that process? And tell us a little bit about that process and that software. All my patients do. When I first started this, I was um, approached by Robert Butler, who was at the time the founder and head of the National Institutes of Aging, because we were a clinic in Manhattan. I'd been on you know, NBC, National News, and some other outlets, New York Times, and part of the earlier movement in anti-aging medicine at the time. And he called me to a roundtable with other gerontology experts to sort of talk about this new field that was evolving. And I talked about the successes that we had, that patients were feeling better, we were optimizing their hormones, we were working on diet, et cetera. And he said, well, that's all great, but you know, you're know, you an anti-aging doctor. What are you doing to actually tell somebody that their aging process is being altered, You know, either good or bad? And that got me to thinking about it. I said, well, you know, Bob, <laughs> I don't really know. <laughs> but he said, look, if you're a hypertension specialist, you measure blood pressure, right? If you're a, a lipid specialist, you measure lipids. If you're a cardiologist, you, you, know, you do a catheterization. Or, so, you know, patients are telling you feeling good. Their friends are saying you're looking good. I started to look at what markers there were out there. And it turns out that there was a very large literature that wasn't that being used for things like diagnosing disease, like spirometry, where you look at the lung function, like arterial stiffness. There was batteries of cognitive function tests. And so we started adding them to the practice. They have age associations, often linear age associations, even starting at very young age, so that you can tell the difference between the optimal function of a 25-year-old versus a 35-year-old. You know, we know that 25-year-old plays better video games than a 35-year-old, even though they're, they're both, you know, not cognitively impaired in any, in any fashion. So there are those changes that take place. And so we just started to measure them. And then as more and more tests came on board, more molecular markers, we kept on adding them. In 2007, we were fortunate to be part of a cohort that looked at the effect of TA65, which is a telomerase activator, turns on the enzyme that can lengthen your telomeres, which we can get into you know, what telomeres are at some point. The idea behind this was this is a, a molecule that could potentially affect the whole body from the cellular level through the organ systems, because we know the telomeres are sort of at the very top of the linchpin, one of the linchpins of aging. And so I said to the founder of the company, Noel Patton, I said, you know, in order for me to offer this, I would want to see what effect it's having on multiple biomarkers in the system. So we did that on a cohort of 114 patients. And then we analyzed all the data after a year of them being on it. And we found some interesting results like improvements in immune system function and cardiometabolic health and other things. But effectively, what we had was a database looking at all these markers. And we were able to produce in a multiple linear regression model a way to, with five, uh, six major biomarkers, to give you an overall physiological age that was pretty robust, even with that smaller data set. And I said to myself, wow, I had this sort of aha moment where I said, this is what we need to do to know whether something is working in the individual patient. I mean, this is what we call N of one medicine, where, yeah, it's great to see all these studies that have been done on this therapy or that therapy, but unless you're exactly like the average person in that trial, the results may not be applicable to, to you. In fact, they may it might be the opposite. You might be in one of the, the people that didn't respond well to it, but it got averaged out. And so you're thinking you're going to get that benefit from it. So that's when we put it all together. We got, I got together with a Stanford sort of biostatistician. He was uh, one of the, uh, he was working at the Stanford Genome Technology Center, Jochen Kuhn, my other partner, Jerry Fortunato, who's an MBA. And we decided to put together this platform that helps doctors doing what I do to know first where their patients are in the aging process from multiple standpoints, but also to give them an idea 
about how each of the organ systems are functioning. So we give a physio age, we give a cardio age, we give a pulmo age, a neuro age, a keto age, et cetera. And then we put it together in a web-based platform that other doctors can, can use to, to tell their patients, you know, they come, uh, patients always come to us and say, well, I've heard about this. Should I try this? And I'm like, okay, let's take a look. Are you weak in the system that it should be addressing? I had a patient that came into me specifically because she wanted to be placed on TA65. She had heard telomeres are, you know, the most important thing. She's a, you know, an early innovator, a biohacker, and she's like, I need TA65. But she was smart enough to know she was a young president, a YPO person, and she's like, she had a network of people. And they said, well, go to this guy first. He's been working with this molecule for a while. Turns out her telomeres were like a 20-year-old. I mean, they were very, very long. She had hit the telomere lottery. She was very lucky. <laughs> she did not need TA65. Now, that's a one percenter, right? which she was in other respects too. But I mean, I saved her a lot of money, A, and I also you know, kept her from taking a therapy that she didn't need. We've been tracking and monitoring it. And that's the sort of thing. And, and likewise, I've had a 40-year-old come in who probably should have perfectly long telomeres. Could you benefit from keeping them a little bit longer? Yeah. But turned out she had telomeres of a 70-year-old. You see this in, in virtually every organ system. Everybody has an aging process that's quite a mosaic of strong systems, weak systems. And so to take advice from somebody on the internet that's saying, everybody should do this, or everybody should do that, or this molecule is the best thing since sliced bread, it's just not true. It really depends on what your aging process is like. And that depends on your genetics. They always say, choose your parents wisely. <laughs> it depends on your lifestyle. It also depends on the infectious load that you've had over your lifestyle. I mean, what viruses you carry, what your microbiome's like, all sorts of things figure into it. So the formula that works for each person is not always the same and it's often quite different. Yeah. So you're using the power of data and patient symptoms. So you're getting the best of both worlds there. So you mentioned you have all these biomarkers that you're testing. Let's use the neuro and the cognitive. Are these written tests or give me an example of how you're testing cognitive? Yeah, so there's the classic neuropsychological testing that was done with a pencil and paper and putting pegs in, figuring out to put a round peg, not in a square hole, that sort of stuff. And then they say a list of tests to you, a list of words to you, and you should recall them back or you try to produce a list of all the words to start with C that you know. That's a laborious process, but it's very well grounded in lots and lots of literature, scientific literature. Those types of tests have been put into online computerized batteries by various companies and distilled them down to a 25 to 30 minute test where you can test the you know six or seven major domains of cognitive function in a very reproducible way. The company we use is CNS Vital Signs. There are other companies out there that do similar things. And that's a great way of knowing what a person's cognitive health trajectory is. And certainly we do screen for if somebody has you know mild cognitive impairment, they're probably not in my office seeking longevity medicine if they're suffering from you know early stages of Alzheimer's disease, but we'll pick that up as well. And so that is, uh, that's one of the tools. And like I said, you want a tool that has a very high ceiling so that you don't, you know, lump everybody into one group because the test can't tease apart the optimal from the super optimal. This test, everybody comes back to me and says, well, that was a really hard test. <laughs> that's because you're 45 and, you know, it's designed to know whether someone's more like a 25 year old or a 20 year old. And so at 45, you're going to find the test challenging. And so that's one example of, of a test we do. Are they doing those tests at home or are they doing them in the office? Either. It depends on whether a little, you know, computer challenged. Uh, we have a, a keyboard and system in here to do it in the office because it takes 30 minutes. We often like to try to get them to do it at home first. And that's the instrument they're going to continue to do it on. It's often at home. 
So if they're computer challenged, they're already getting docked a point on the neuro test. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Exactly. Already suboptimal. So I saw a quote on your website and I want to read it. It says, I created physio age analytics to help me optimize the health of my patients by focusing on optimal ranges instead of normal ranges. This approach is the best way to maintain the health span, high performance and absence of disease. So I love that quote, and I want to underscore and discuss the importance and the understanding of optimal versus normal. And we see this a lot in hormones, right? These ranges, very, very large, and it's sometimes difficult to explain to a patient why they maybe went to another provider and they fell inside the range, why they're at the bottom of the range, they're, quote, in the normal range. So Explain what you mean here by the normal versus optimal. Yeah, it's a really important point, and that's why I have that quote on the website. It's really, you know, one of the major reasons for putting the system together as well. People have to understand that, you know, we're all used to going into our doctor's office, you know, looking at the lab sheets and seeing the high, the low, or the normal, the abnormal. And they basically just go down the sheet and only look at those and ignore the rest because it's, quote unquote, in the normal range. But the normal range is those values which fall within 97% of the population values that, that the lab sees. And, you know, we all know that there's quite a wide range of level of health and performance and disease predisposition in that 97% of the population because 97% of the population is not in optimal health, right? So the people that are on the lower end or the higher end, depending on what kind of value you're looking at, are, you know, farther away from average health or certainly very far away from optimal health and to ignore them just because they're within that, you know, 97.5% or depending on how far out they report it for their lab, how many standard deviations are reporting out is to miss a major opportunity to pick up early in intervention opportunities. So I call it practicing normal range medicine. You know, if you look at it and you go, okay, I can ignore it unless it has a high or a low by it then you're really missing the opportunity. Yes, those are designed to diagnose disease, but disease in most types of diseases, I'll say this phrase, biological variables are continuous. I'll say it again. Biological variables are continuous. It's not like you have an infection or you don't have an infection or, you know, it's not like trauma. You didn't get hit in the head or you got hit in the head. Giving your example of hormones, the normal range of 97.5% of males for testosterone would be around 300, depending on the lab, could be 290, could be 280, up to 800, 900, 1,000, depending on the assay they're using or the population that they're using. And what a doctor will do, and I have many patients come into my office complaining of low libido, their workout recovery is not as good, they've been working out for a long time, they're otherwise fit, they're not overweight, they don't have an illness. But, and I said, well, this could be low testosterone. I went to my doctor and my testosterone level was 320. And he said, oh, you're fine. You're in the normal range. No worries. You don't need testosterone. Because he's looking at it. There's no high or low mark there on it. But the fact is, if he came in at 299, he all of a sudden has hypogonadism and he's treatable. That's 21 points of difference. The difference between that and somebody that's you know at 800 is huge in terms of their ability to recover, their mood, their energy, so many other things. So that it really doesn't make any sense to deny treatment to that guy versus the 299 guy. And that's really what PhysioAge does. Within that normal range, we will give you a grade, a continuous grading from disease to borderline 
to average, to healthy, to optimal, to perhaps excess treatment in the other side. So that you can improve your, that's the other thing we do. We give an overall grade point for that category, hormone health. That's so cool. I love that. Yeah. And then we take each of those categories, hormone health, cardiovascular risk, heart health, and give you an overall grade for the things that aren't as age sensitive as the major biomarkers that we use for the for giving you the, the pulmo age and the cardio age, et cetera. So our patients are all focused on their grade point average. We want to improve that. And I, I should say that the way in which we grade, I'm, I'm a tough grader. So even the healthiest 25-year-old that does everything right usually doesn't get above a 3.6 because not everybody can be absolutely optimal in every category that we measure. So if you're above a B, then you're doing very well, particularly if you're you know, in your 60s and you're above a B. We thought about adjusting the software because there are people that are just really unhappy about being a BB plus. They've never <laughs> been that in their life. And then I refer them to you know, to psychiatry or, or to, to see a therapist to, to, to lower those crazy standards. I mean, I'm sure this helps tremendously with patient buy-in and helping them understand because if I just look at the hormone example, I think a patient would understand if they come in with a 300 T level, like that's a D. Okay. You have a D and that would resonate with them. Oh, that's not great. Okay. I don't want to be a D. So I bet you get a great buy-in and understanding from the patient doing it this way. Yeah. I mean, it it really is. And then the other thing that's, that's good is that a lot of hormone replacement therapy has been done for symptoms only. And that's been the mantra all along, which is sort of, well, well, the women's health initiative the debacle is a whole nother conversation. But even when they realized that they had interpreted the data, you know, incorrectly and they, the timing hypothesis was, was important and that if you started hormones late, you had a little bit less of a beneficial effect initially. Still, a lot of traditional gynecologists and internists will say, you know, you take it for symptoms only for five years, the shortest amount of time possible, because that's all it's good for. Well, I have patients who have been on hormone replacement therapy now for 25 years. I hate to say I've been doing that that long. And their doctors are like, you need to come off of this. And I say to them, well, we have 20 years of biomarkers here and your arterial health is aging at a very slow rate. Your skin elasticity is improving. So if they go off for a year because they're listening to their doctor, they want to see what things are like, we'll have a marker to say this is accelerated. Yeah. And this is, you can argue whether the large trial showed a benefit in you it's showing a benefit. And there's no argument that more elastic arteries are better for you. More elastic skin looks better. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. That was actually my next question because I watched you do an interview, I think, with WorldLink or AMMG or one of those organizations. And you spoke about the improvement you see in someone's glycogen or physio age when they're on hormones. And I wanted you to elaborate on that a little more. Yeah, so that's the really interesting and gratifying thing for me to see hormone therapy sort of come full circle, I think, and the science is really what's backing it. So, you know, prior to the Women's Health Initiative in 2002, hormone replacement therapy for women, never mind testosterone, that's a whole other discussion, but we'll get to it, was thought of as anti-aging medicine. I mean, you, you went on it for symptoms, but you stayed on it because there was a lot of observational data that showed that these women had better health outcomes over the long term. And that all got turned on its head. And now they say, you know, it's not beneficial for aging, but you can take it for symptoms. Well, there's a lot of data coming out now showing that, you know, from the epigenetic clocks that menopause accelerates epigenetic aging, which is aging in multiple systems. It's looking at gene expression changes throughout your body that, you know, if you put a woman on hormone replacement therapy, that epigenetic aging gets replaced, gets reversed. So 
Yeah, from an objective standpoint, you know, hormone therapy, keeping estradiol in a, a certain above a certain level in both a male and a female is very, very important. One of the more sort of, I think, really fascinating recent things that we found is that the glycan age, which is the pattern of sugars attached to your antibodies in your blood, the um, IgG immunoglobulins, which are the ones we look at sort of when we measure COVID antibodies, but they do a major part of your immune system to help fight off viruses and tumors and bacteria, that that pattern gets more inflammatory and can be associated with a particular age for, you know, what's the average pattern for that age? So you get a glycan age. That pattern is profoundly affected by hormone therapy. In fact, we were one of the earlier adopters of doing the glycan age, and I started doing it on all my patients. And the results were coming back like crazy results, like 55-year-old guys having a glycan age of 20, 60-year-old women having a glycan age of 40. And it turned out that the average patient in my practice, the average male was 25 years younger by glycan age than chronological age, and the average female was 15 to 20 years younger. And so the founder of the company, Gordon Laos, got in touch with us and said, what are you guys doing over there? Yeah, <laughs> so, that's cool. This is a little wild. Um, uh, he said, what's the magic you're doing over there? And I said, well, you know, it's, it's no magic. All my patients have their, you know, they're, they're doing the diet and exercise sides of things. Their metabolic health is great. That affects glycan age as well. Uh, you don't want to be obese. You don't want to smoke. You don't want to have high blood pressure, high, you know, blood sugar issues. But by far and away, the, the major thing is because a lot of patients come in with all those things being good. But with low hormone levels, we put them on hormones and they drop their glycan age in a matter of three months. And that dovetailed with a couple of studies that he had done looking at what happens to women, premenopausal women, when you knock out their ovarian function with Lupron and then see what happens to their glycan age. And it accelerates by 10 years. But if you give add back estradiol with a patch, that doesn't happen. And he's like, Wow, this is happening in your clinic. And, and that's the, the fun thing is that, you know, what we're doing in our practice is exactly being reproduced, is re reproducing what they found in, in these studies. And so now that's kind of changed our thoughts. And I hope a lot of other people's thoughts, because I've been talking about this, about in male testosterone replacement therapy, a lot of places where testosterone is great, estrogen is bad. Men don't want to grow breasts. You don't, you don't want to have these bodybuilders with breasts. And so keep estrogen as low as possible, get testosterone as high as possible. And so the use of aromatase inhibitors has been quite significant. And I think what we've learned from that is that there may be some place for it, but the vast majority of the time is the thing to do is to turn down the dose of the testosterone. You want the estradiol to be in that reasonable range. I always tell my female patients when they're considering hormone replacement therapy and whether or not it's natural to have a low estradiol level, I say, your husband at 55 and you're 55 has five times the estrogen circulating in his blood that you have. That is probably one of the major reasons that women catch up to men in almost every chronic disease quite quickly, which they have a benefit before menopause, after menopause, if they don't do hormone replacement therapy, because mammals, I think, you know, humans included, need a certain level of estradiol to have optimal physiological functioning. And so you don't want to take a male and take his estradiol from, you know, a nice, healthy, you know, 20 I'd say up to 50 even without any problem, down to 10 or undetectable because, well, if they're undetectable, they're going to start getting hot flashes just like a woman. <laughs> but, you know, taking them down low, I've seen that. I've seen that in males come in. They're on testosterone replacement therapy. They're getting a second opinion from me. They're on Arimidex. Take them off Arimidex. Their glycan age drops 20 points. And so that's the kind of thing that's been really interesting and gratifying to see how hormone replacement therapy has, I think, some you know, this has been shown now to have some significant anti-aging effects with the markers that we're looking at. 
Yeah, we totally are on the same page with the estrogen. We feel like we're constantly trying to educate men on the importance of having it. There are other clinics that are still blocking it, and it's a mindset shift for them for sure. So we feel like it's a very important message that we're constantly trying to deliver through our social media and education that we're we're doing around the importance of estrogen in men. Yeah, I mean, it's equally as important in men as it is in women. Postmenopausally, and that's the other thing about these poor guys that have metastatic prostate cancer and, you know, they have the, the Lupron that, you know, if you don't have any testosterone as a male, you're not going to have any significant estradiol, particularly when you're older, unless you have some DHEA, because you just don't get, well, even, even then, you just don't get enough conversion into estrogen. And so they end up getting brittle bones, cardiovascular disease. You just have to think long and hard about it. And the same thing does take place in women with breast cancer. They're on these uh, aromatase inhibitors and estrogen blockers, tamoxifen. And you have to sort of wonder if they're losing sight of the forest for the trees. Yeah, something like that, however the phrase yeah. goes. Because, you know, there's other organs in the body. Yes, you want to prevent death from metastatic breast cancer but and from metastatic prostate cancer. But if you cause a heart attack or a pathologic fracture that puts them in the hospital and causes sepsis and death, then you haven't done them any favor. And, and there are voices that are calling out for, you know, some maybe moderation of that. Uh, and I think, you know, it just shows the important role of estrogen in human physiology. Do you ever see where you get a man in optimal testosterone range, but they're not converting into estrogen and their estrogen is still sitting under 10, under 15, undetectable, according to most labs? How do you address that? You have to look at the free versus the total levels, okay? In an older man, typically your, your binding protein, the SHBG, is going to be a little bit higher. And so the total testosterone will be a little bit higher. So you look at the free testosterone really to gauge therapy. Likewise with the estradiol. I mean... If they're, you know, a young guy and their estradiol level is 15 to 20, but their SHBG is 15 to 20, that may be enough. The free estradiol would give you a better indicator of that, but there's not, you know, a large data set on that. But there again, the glycan age would be a very good way to judge the adequacy in somebody like that. I mean, it usually happens in somebody who's incredibly lean, so they have less fat, Fat is what expresses aromatase more. That's why you see the older guys that go on testosterone that may have an, an estradiol that spikes to 60, 70. They lose that fat and that doesn't go up quite as high. So they may have enough estradiol. You know, oftentimes I have patients that once they've gotten into a good regimen, they want to sort of send their 20 to 25-year-old kids in just for a baseline. And I'll see somebody with a, a testosterone level of 800 but a, or you know 700, very healthy, no complaints, no signs of testosterone deficiency, and then an estradiol of, say, 20, but their SHBG is 20, 18, 20, and that's fine. I don't think that you need to try to raise it any unless the glycan age is saying that, but it's a, it, you don't come, I don't come, come across that that often. It's really more the, the estradiol is going a little too high, and now, you know, unless they're, they are getting, you know, breast stimulation, which you can sometimes see, I'll modulate the testosterone dose, but I, I almost never use aromatase inhibitors anymore. Perfect. Okay. So telomere, telomere, I'm now self-conscious. Maybe I'm saying it wrong. <laughs> yeah, so, but it's, it's, it's potato, potato. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So let's educate us on, I'm going to say telomere. You're going to say telomere. What are telomeres? So yes, I am going to say telomere because I grew up saying telomeres, but you know, Elizabeth Blackburn says telomere. Uh, Michael Fossil says telomere, uh, you know, it doesn't matter. I tried to train myself to say telomere, but 
I come from philosophy and telos is a, a big for, uh, word there. And that means the end. And that's sort of in that uh, setting, it means sort of what's the meaning of doing something or what's the cause of doing something. And so telos is the end and mir is part. And so it's the end part of the chromosome. That's the Greek word telomere. And that's the part of the DNA that is non-coding. So you don't lose any information and it's not important for a, a promoter or anything like that uh, for initiating gene transcription that gets shorter every time the chromosomes, the, the cells divide and the chromosomes are, are reproducing themselves. And the reason that you have telomeres is because in what we call eukaryotic cells or multicellular organisms, which have eukaryotic cells, they don't have round chromosomes like bacteria and, and unicellular organisms have. They have linear chromosomes. And the problem with linear chromosomes is that whenever there's a break in your DNA from a mutation, there's the DNA damage response that gets turned on to go in there and fix that break. And so if you had these linear ends just floating around in, in, um, you know, in the cell, the DNA damage response would want to come and stop cellular you know, replication and, and try to repair them. So they have to be shielded so that they're not recognized by the DNA damage response. So they are both a molecular clock and they also, they're there to, to, uh, to sort of not have this response take place. You can liken them to sort of the, uh, the little plastic um, things on the ends of shoelaces that are called aglets that sort of keep the, 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 the shoelace from fraying. That is sort of the analogy that's used to look at what the telomere does. It gets uh, the end of a telomere, a telomere sort of between in a human at uh, birth, say 10 to 15,000 base pairs long or 10 to 15 kilobases long. And at the very end of it, there is a loss of what we call the five prime side of the chromosome of the DNA. And there's just this three prime overhang, and that's about 150 to 200 base pairs long. And that gets folded up with the help of these proteins called the sheltering complex of the DNA binding proteins that turn it into a T-loop by taking that little piece and, and sort of looping it back into the more proximal chromosome, the more proximal DNA. And that forms the telomere complex, which sits there at the end to keep it from being recognized as damaged DNA. Now, when the cells replicate, the problem with DNA polymerase, which is the main enzyme that can keep cells from, help make cells replicate their DNA, that falls off the end of the linear chromosome. So it can't replicate the very end of it. So you need this enzyme called telomerase, which then can get turned on to lengthen the telomeres. So what we have at birth, though, that those telomeres, that telomerase is turned off. You can imagine that you have to have this enzyme working because you go from a single cell to many trillions of cells if you didn't, we weren't able to replicate the ends of the telomeres, that would be a problem. You would never make it to a full-size uh, organism. In fact, we see going from birth to full adult size, an acceleration of telomere loss that then sort of levels out after you've reached a full adult size because those cells are you know, creating this larger organism. So telomerase is turned off at birth and there's a little bit of activity in white blood cells in the gut and in other things so that it can sort of keep your stem cells from, allow them to continue to divide, to you know, replenish degenerating tissues. But it's not enough to keep the telomeres from continually shortening about 50 base pairs, 30 to 50 base pairs per year, or 0.03, 0.05 kilobases. And so over the lifespan, if you lose 50 base pairs going from about 8,000, which you're at young adulthood around 20, you get over that next 60 years, you get to what's called the telomere brink down to around five kilobases. And that's where there's a preponderance of telomeres that are too short. And when there's a lot of really short telomeres in a cell, a cell becomes senescent. It cannot divide anymore. 
But the problem with it is oftentimes just sits around and causes problems. It's like a, a like it's likened to a, an old watchdog. And not only does it not have good eyesight or a good sense of smell to know when something's coming that's dangerous, it's biting its owner. You know, it's doing all, you know, pooping where it shouldn't poop. It's doing all sorts of bad things. And that's what these cells do. And that's a big part of the aging process, the accumulation of senescent cells that then secrete all these inflammatory markers. And so keeping telomeres at a more optimal length helps to prevent we think, to slow down the aging process in a very upstream upstream level. That's sort of a, just a quick overview of what telomeres are. We can go on from there. There's just so many other things to say about them. So how do you test someone's telomeres? The main way to do it now commercially is through a blood test. There was for a while some saliva tests, but I, I don't think that they're very accurate. You get a tube of blood and there's two or three labs to send into around the world. I think the best ones are not in the country, but uh, there are other labs that do it. Uh, SpectraCell in the United States that does it. There's the one that I use, Repeat Diagnostics in Vancouver, Canada, that, that, that does it. And they're the ones that do it for, for all the children's hospitals looking for short telomere syndromes and for bone marrow transplant issues. And then there's a company in Spain called LifeLength that does it, but you can send samples from the US that does it very well as well. It's a slightly different technology. So those are your options for telomere length. There's a couple other companies I think that are out there that we could get into telomere length measurement techniques, but that's you know maybe not where we want to go. I would just say that uh, that one of those two companies, LifeLength or, T uh, or um Repeat diagnostics would be good. A spectrocell you could use to get a sort of a, a general idea, but following your telomere length longitudinally with the technique that they use, I think is not as good as if you use the, the other two companies. Their technique can be followed longitudinally and get a good idea. And that's what you want to know. A single telomere length is important because it's really, really short. That tells you something. If it's really long, that tells you something. But what's really important is how fast you're losing telomere length because that's an integrator of all the things that are going on in your body that's causing your cells, the white blood cells in your body to have to divide to respond to them. And that's been associated in many, many studies with every chronic disease of aging there is. I mean, telomere length is associated with increased risk of cardiovascular disease, coronary heart disease, cancer, diabetes, COPD, dementia, you name it. Pretty much every degenerative disease in, 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 and also neoplastic ones, cancer as, as can be associated with telomere length. And you want to see, and with the rapidity of telomere length attrition. So following them longitudinally, which is what I do in my practice, I think is, is a beneficial thing. And it also helps you know whether the things that you're bringing to bear to slow down that attrition, lifestyle, diet, et cetera, which I should say, parenthetically, that the other thing about telomere biology that's really fascinating is that everything we know that is good for you from various different kinds of studies, not being sedentary, not smoking, not being overweight, keeping stress out of your life, not being diabetic, vitamin D, fish oil, a diet high in fruits and vegetables, all of those things are associated with longer telomeres. And the opposite is associated with shorter telomeres. And so it is an integrator of, of so sort of the stressors of those things. And the more of those things that you have, the shorter the telomeres are going to be and the more attrition you're going to have. Now, the reason a single telomere length has been poo-pooed as a biomarker of aging is because there's such a wide variation in inheritance. Telomere length is about 70% heritable. That's a very high level. So you can start out at that range of 8 to 12 kilobases, which you know is what you are at birth, depending on you know how well you chose your parents, as I said, at 8, and be like pretty much the same as somebody who's well into adulthood. And so you have to be more careful about what you're doing to cause your telomeres to shorten versus somebody who's really high, they come in at 12 kilobases, 
They've got a lot of telomere reserve. I, I call it the sort of the telomeres are, are one of the elements of your biological 401k. It's how much reserve you have to have a nice, healthy, long health span. Just as if you have a lot of money in your 401k, you can enjoy a nice, fun retirement. If you're not well-funded, you're not going to be able to have as good a retirement. And that's sort of what telomeres are. It is really quite heritable. So I'm only familiar with the SpectraCell result page. So what gets you to react to want to treat someone's telomere length? And then that's what I want to talk about next, how you actually treat them outside of some of these lifestyle things. Yeah. So um, it's always a sort of a question. I mean, it's sort of like, what level of cholesterol do you treat? I mean, it used to be if it's a below 300, no big deal. You know, you don't have hyperlipidemia. And then they did some studies and it's below 250, then you're better off than if it's above 250. And now it's like the lower your LDL, the better. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, there's some data to support that for sure. And again, that goes with this whole idea that biological variables are continuous. So what telomere length should you be concerned about? I mean, ideally, you don't lose any telomere length across your lifespan. So then you could say, well, maybe we should start treating people at 20. The major therapy that's available now where, you know, less expensive, we'd probably be doing that in, in, in all patients and following their telomere length. But if you're 10 years older than your chronological age, I think you're a very good candidate for it. And even if you're 10 years younger and you're 80, then you're still a candidate for it. If you're in the bottom one percentile, then you probably have either a lot of stress in your life and you inherited poor telomere length or both, or you have what's called a telomere biology disorder, a TBD, or what's called a telomeropathy, which is uh, you've inherited a defect in the, the telomerase gene that gives you perhaps 50% telomerase activity, that used to be thought to be a very rare disorder. And the, the, the sort of paradigmatic form of it is dyskeratosis congenita, which is a, a skin disease, but with abnormal pigmentation, abnormal nails, some uh, leukoplakia in your mouth. But that's just because those are highly proliferative tissues and the telomeres can't keep up with doing their job. What really happens is those people die of bone marrow failure before they're 30 often. But they're the third generation, typically, of the mutation that has taken place that's caused their telomerase to be only 50%. Their parents or grandparents had it, and they were able to pass along their genes, and maybe they died of something else, or they died of coronary heart disease, and nobody looked for telomere length. Nobody looked to see how long their telomeres are. So I think there's a whole heck of a lot more of these mutations, and they may be polygenic as well. There may be parts of the, the binding proteins that put the telomere caps together that are not as functioning as well so that the telomere is exposed to uh, the DNA damage response or to oxidative stress more. So I think the number you know could be quite a bit higher. I've run across four or five patients in my practice that fit that criteria. We haven't found the mutation because it's probably another mutation that it's in their DNA that we don't know yet what it is. But so if you find somebody that's in the bottom one percentile, you definitely want to help them to augment their telomerase activity by using this substance, uh, TA65, which is an extract of a traditional Chinese medicine called astragalus root that has been known for millennia in Chinese medicine to enhance longevity and immune function. But what happened was the company Jaron um, back in the late 80s, early 90s, did a natural product screen of over 5,000 molecules and, and got hits on a number of them, but particularly this compound for turning on the enzyme in a, in a validated assay telomerase. And then they took it down the drug development route to address the need of the company's called Jaron because Jaron means old man, I think in Greek, maybe Latin, <laughs> I forget. 
but then they decided not to pursue that because the FDA wasn't was wasn't you know in the the mood to to approve drugs for aging. So they went down cancer uh, chemotherapeutics, and they sold off the rights to this company TA Sciences, and that's why we have TA sixty five, which is a, a 99 percent pure extract of that uh, the active component of astragalus root, and so that's that's what we use to turn on telomerase. And that's an oral capsule, correct? It's an, an oral capsule for the 250 IU dose, which is a starting dose. There's a tablet form at 500 IUs that I use as well. And, and that's the other thing. You know, so people are sort of like, well, you can take TA65. You know, it's a very safe molecule, I believe. Uh, uh, it's pretty localized to what it does in turning on telomerase. And there's tens of thousands of people that are taking it now. But the dose that, that works for you, again, back to this personalized medicine idea, can be quite variable. We know from company studies that the pharmacodynamics are quite different person to person. One person with a, the same dose may get tenfold the increased level of TA65 in their blood, and it has to get into the blood to then to get into the cells to turn on telomerase than somebody else. And so 100 IUs, and there is a 100 IU capsule as well, may work in that patient, but you might need up to 1,000 IUs in the other patient. And if you're spending, you know, $250 a month or $200 a month on the 250 and it's not doing anything, that's a waste of money. Likewise, if you're saying, well, more is better, so I'll spend $1,000 a month on it, you may be you know, wasting your money. And there's actually probably a sweet spot there for blood level that activates telomerase transiently to turn on telomere length. And I have had patients, I just reviewed one a couple of days ago with a couple, they seem to be following each other, and their telomere length has gone up put them both on 250. One of them went up nicely, about a half a kilobase on that in six months. The other one didn't. I rechecked her level and then put her on 500. And now she's going up and she's up, uh, I think, 0.7 kilobases. And that's the way you practice, you know, evidence-based, N of one personalized medicine that is rational, right? You don't put everybody on the same dose of blood pressure medication because some people are going to be passing out and some people are not going to be having any benefit. That's one marker that we use to track the effectiveness of that therapy. And do patients have to stay on it for the rest of their life to receive that benefit or when can they come off of it? Yeah, so that's a great question. And I get that question from patients. And the nice thing about TA65, it's more like treating bone density than it is like treating blood pressure. So the minute you stop an antihypertensive medication, your blood pressure goes back up again to whatever level it was or you know, within, you know, as soon as the drug gets out of your, your system. If you're treating osteoporosis and somebody has been put on a drug to increase bone density and the bone density has gone up, up and up over a couple of years, once you stop that drug, you don't all of a sudden go back to this, your starting bone density. You have to wait for the process, the osteoclast chewing up the bone and the, you know, the osteoblast not laying down enough bone to then gradually lose that bone density again. The same thing occurs with telomeres. Once you put that telomere length on, the processes of cell division or oxidative stress or whatever is causing it to get shorter in that individual will go back to work and will gradually chip away at that. You don't see it all of a sudden going back to baseline immediately. So do you need to stay on it lifelong? No. I mean, if you go on it for a year and you go off of it, you're going to continue to have those benefits for quite a while, depending on how much telomere length you got. And certainly, you know, you don't need to go on it for, for full time. I mean, I would say that with antihypertensive, if you're on it for a year, you know, you're keeping your arteries from remodeling in a bad way for that year. And yeah, your blood pressure goes back up again, but it's not like you're all of a sudden at the same stroke or, or heart attack risk. But it is more like bone density with the telomere lengthening uh, agents. Okay, perfect. Another quote that I liked of yours was, you're only as young as your immune age. 
And this one, you talk about CMV. I've heard you talk about herpes virus. I've heard you talk about these some of these viruses and their link with Alzheimer's. So let's discuss it. Where do you want to start? Yeah. So, I mean, that's a, you know, a little bit of a strong statement, but I think that it, it is backed up by, uh, I think, a lot of good data. Your immune system is important not only for getting rid of infectious agents and tumors, but also cleaning up junk cells that have gone under the, become senescent and, you know, just taking up space and, and secreting inflammatory molecules. A really dramatic study that was done recently by Yusafadeh, I, th- yeah, I think that's the author, where they took a mouse model and knocked out a DNA repair system, ERCC, so that they were accumulating DNA damage more quickly, but they did it just in the immune system. The first time they did it in the whole mouse, and the mouse you know, dies of degenerative diseases and cancer much earlier. So clearly you need to have your DNA repair mechanisms functioning. But then they did it just in the immune system. And while it wasn't quite as extensive, it was quite extensive. The overall multi-organ system damage that was done with just having that senescent immune system not doing its job anymore and secreting a lot of inflammatory markers. So if your immune system is old and damaged, it doesn't matter whether you don't have a, a low cholesterol or, you know, that's why, you know, you see people with like rheumatoid arthritis or other autoimmune disorders where there's a lot of inflammation taking place that don't have high cholesterol, that don't have high blood pressure, don't have blood sugar issues, having increased risk of cardiovascular disease because of the higher inflammation that's occurring and because of the, the inability of your immune system to clear out cells the way they did when you were younger. We're always damaging cells. The issue is that we're not repairing DNA and we're not cleaning up cells as efficiently as we get older. And so looking at immunosenescence as, you know, treating that as sort of the, the most important thing, you know, sort of like when your airplane goes into crash mode and the oxygen, the pre- so the cabin depressurizes, they always say, put your mask on first. Well, you want to put, fix the immune system first before you can help anybody else. And I think that that, that is quite true. And so, as you mentioned, yeah, there are things that age the immune system more rapidly. And it turns out that the herpes viruses are one of them, and particularly CMV, cytomegalovirus, which is a benign virus if you ask your regular doctor or your internist, because in immunocompetent adults, that's, you know, people that aren't on immunosuppressants for, uh, because they have had a transplant or have AIDS or, or some other chronic immune deficiency, CMV doesn't really do anything in terms of disease. I mean, I, I was treating patients uh, during the early days of the AIDS epidemic. And if you don't have a functioning immune system, if your T cells are pretty much knocked out, which is what happens in late stage age, CMV causes gastrointestinal disease, you know, brain disease, lung disease, you can go blind from it. So it can be a very bad actor, but the human immune system has evolved to be able to keep it at bay. Yeah. Let me ask you about that real quick, though. I read a statement that like 50 to 80% of people have that virus by the time they're 40. Is that true? Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> so it's so, so people listening, this CMV, it's not like, oh, I don't have that. I don't need to worry about it. Like 50 to 80%, that's a lot of people. Yeah. So th- that's a, that's another conversation I, ha- I have to have with patients. You, CMV is ubiquitous, okay? There are countries where CMV seropositivity is 100%. About, you know, there's a certain percentage of them get them when they're coming through the birth canal. If it's really active at that time, then there is disease because the infant is not able to fight it off and you, you can get deafness and other problems from it. So they're looking for a CMV vaccination. By the time you reach 10 years of age in the US, 30% are CMV positive. And then it's a 1% seroconversion rate per year 
up until, you know, 100. And so each year, a certain proportion, zero convert. So the average zero positivity in the U.S. is about 55 to 60%. But if you're over 50, it's closer to 60, 70, 80% that you're talking about, depending on your age. Now, you know, again, if you're sitting on the subway, more people in that subway are CMV positive than not. And so, I, you know, you shouldn't get freaked out about it. It is spread through sexual contact and ca casual contact. So I don't want you to be a Howard Hughes, but if you're in the subway or if you're grabbing a, the door of a limo, whichever, you know, <laughs> thing you're doing, you don't want to all of a sudden just start rubbing your face or sticking your hand in your mouth without washing your hands because you can get it that way. That being said, there probably is some resistance in some individuals and you have to be shedding virus at the time. Like if you have a cold sore and you can spread herpes one through a, an actively shedding cold sore. CMV, there's no active shedding thing that you can see. You might feel a little achy, you might feel a little tired, but you don't really know. But you're not actively shedding very often. I have patients who are married. They've been patients for 15 years. One CMV positive, the other CMV negative. They kiss all the time. You know, they're on testosterone and estrogen, so they're having a good time. And so it's not like, you know, oh, I got to make sure that I don't start dating somebody that's CMV positive if I'm CMV negative. <laughs> that's not the case. But all things being equal, it does change your immune system. As soon as you become CMV positive, you accumulate a lot more senescent T cells in a particular compartment, the suppressor cells. Your naive T cell percentage goes down. That doesn't cause any initial you know, problem. But if that process continues and you get to the point where you have enough senescent T cells that they have increased the volume of the T cells that are called the suppressor cells, that's the CD8s, the ratio of the helper cells, the CD4s, to the suppressor cells, and we call that the immune risk ratio, if that goes below one, then there's good data to show that you're at considerably increased risk of two, four, and six-year mortality if you are in the 80 and above category. If you're younger, you're probably at more increased risk for cardiovascular disease, and you're headed toward a less healthy trajectory, but the mortality risk isn't, isn't quite the same. It's definitely something that is deleterious. Now, there are experts in this area, and, and you know, if anybody's listening, yes, CMV can have some beneficial effects in our ancestral environment. It probably caused our immune systems to be a little bit more robust, which then helped us to fight off parasites, which we were rife with in our ancestral environment. And that was probably why it was selected for and we why there, we had a pretty good uh, symbiotic relationship. Because remember, in our ancestral environment, none of us made it very often to above 30 or 40. And so this damage starts to really start taking place and become significant after that when most of us are dead. So it's uh, an example of what we call antagonistic pleiotropy, where a particular trait that comes from genetics is beneficial early, but later it may have harm because it's not selected for because the most of the individuals in that species have already passed on their genes and it's and there's no selective pressure for it. So, you know, look, all things being equal, I prefer not to be CMV positive, but I think, you know, at some point we'll probably have a vaccination for it. And then now there are therapies. It only causes a problem because it shortens your telomeres because those cells have to divide, divide, and divide to fight off the CMV to keep it at bay. If we can keep the telomeres longer, then there's not an issue. Perfect. I'm curious about the connection between the herpes and the Alzheimer's. Can you expand why there's a connection there? Well, I mean, it probably has to do, and this is a, you know, not a small, but not a conclusive literature on herpes viruses and Alzheimer's disease, particularly HSV-1 is sort of seems to be the biggest actor in that regard. It probably has to do with the fact that 
remember your brain is filled with neurons and they don't divide, but they're far outnumbered, 10 to one or more, by the glial cells around them, which are basically the supporting cells. And those cells do divide. And if they are attacked by, you know, if herpes virus is circulating, then they have to divide more regularly. Their telomeres get shorter. They become senescent. And then they can no longer do their caretaker job for the neurons, which is very important for the neurons to stay healthy. And so that they then get mitochondrially less efficient. They start having poor autophagy and accumulation of the beta amyloid starts to take place and causing the Alzheimer's pathology. Okay. We're approaching our hour. It went so fast. So I'm just going to have one more question to you, even though we didn't get to the NAD or rapamycin, which I wanted to get to. But my last question is, are there any books that you're reading that you would recommend to the listeners or podcasts that you tune into? I very often stick closely to the the medical literature on the books. And so I'm not as wide a reader. You know, I I recently read, you know, David Sinclair's Lifespan book, which I I think is a good introduction to to things like that. On my list is Morgan Levine's book to read and uh, Dr. Cara Fitzgerald's book, Younger You, is a great read about epigenetics and things you can do in lifestyle to sort of reverse your aging those are the main ones. Uh, Michael Fossil has a great book on telomeres. It's F-O-S-S-E-L. I think it's called the Telomerase Revolution. He has a number of books, and he's, I think, one of the, the great conveyors of telomere biology to both researchers and to the lay public. And as the head of a new company called Telesite that's going to use telomerase activation through gene therapy to, to treat and to prevent Alzheimer's disease because of this idea that it's the shortening telomeres that, that uh, are related to that. But yeah, I would love to have talked to you about the rapamycin and the NAD because that's a hot topic. But I can just tell you briefly that you want to be careful about rapamycin and get yourself measured in ways to know because not everybody is a great candidate for rapamycin. I'll leave that that little teaser out there. Well, see, now you're going to have to come back on at some point and talk about it because it's getting a lot of buzz. Kind of going back to the beginning of the podcast, you can't just dive into everything that you see on the Internet or that somebody's promoting. It has to be right for you. That is true. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm treating patients with rapamycin. I'm, I'm actually on it because I am a good candidate for it. Just started that. And I think that it's a very interesting molecule. But again, I think that these things have to be used carefully and measure the effect of what you're doing and not just assume that, you know, you're going to get the beneficial effect that everybody else says that they're getting. You just don't know. Well, I appreciate your time. You do a phenomenal job in this longevity medicine space. You're a wealth of knowledge. So I greatly appreciate your time. And I'm going to attach some studies in the show notes. And I'm also going to attach these books that he just referenced and his Instagram and how to get in contact with him. So doctor, I appreciate you being on the show today. Well, you're welcome. I should say, I mean, I get interviewed by a lot of people and you're knowledge and questions are really right on point. And I appreciate that. It makes, makes it a lot easier to get the message out when the, when the right questions are being asked. Thank you. I appreciate that. You're welcome. 